Well, good evening and welcome everybody. I'm really glad to see you here tonight. Thanks for coming out. Uh, my name is Karen Eifler and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life in American Culture. And it looks like we have some folks who this might be uh, one of their first visits to UP. So we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, a few announcements before we dive into our, our conversation with Dr. Nick tonight. Um, we have a, a number of really wonderful other events coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, in, including a pre-show panel for Eurydice uh, this Saturday evening uh, and a wine and cheese reception for all ticket holders for that play. So we have some information about that. We're hosting the annual Hesburgh Lecture, which will be looking at Islam, Catholicism, and kind of the history of, of that relationship and looking toward the future of that relationship. That's coming up in March. And a number of other really scintillating things, all right? Um, and so the, the flyers for that are over at the table uh, against that wall under the clock. If you are a student who's here as part of a class and need to sign in um, to document that you've been here, uh, our fantastic student workers, Melissa and Andrew, will help you out after the lecture. Uh, they'll set up a table um, in the hallway just outside here for that, all right? Um, if this is your first uh, visit to, you, to a Garabena Center event and you're from the community and you'd like to know more and make sure you stay on top of the fast-breaking uh, Garabena Center story. We have a sign up for our monthly email, um, and that is also on the table over there. So I think that's it for announcements. Say, oh, and PDUs, that's right. How could I forget? If you are a K 12 teacher from any school system, um, one of the things that we're able to offer at no cost to you is a complimentary PDU, professional development units, and there's a sign up for that. Uh, all we need is a coherent name and a coherent email um, address from you, and that'll appear in your inbox tomorrow. Uh, so that is good for you, Father Charlie. Well done. Okay. Well, one of the greatest gifts that Father Charlie and I have in the greatest job at UP is connecting with our colleagues from every discipline who have fabulous ideas for helping us uncover sources of truth and grace and beauty from their own fields and sharing those with broader audiences than any of us could ever manage on our own. Tonight is one of those times and we're really grateful to Professor Serena Saturn of our Psychological Sciences Department um, for helping us bring this into being and connecting us with our guest speaker. With a doctorate in clinical psychology from UC Berkeley, a master's in social work from the University of Michigan, and a bachelor's degree in comparative religions from Harvard, we know that our guest tonight, Dr. Joel Nigg, has great academic credentials. His advanced work in cognitive neuroscience, and in particular, his research on the science of ADHD, attention, uh, deficit hyperactivity disorder, and strategies for helping children and their families cope and even flourish while living with that disorder are widely respected and used in households and classrooms throughout the country. 
What makes Dr. Nick a natural for the Garabinus Center is his ongoing quest as a man of deep Catholic convictions to integrate the rigorous intellectual habits and pursuit of answers that he's cultivated as a cognitive psychologist with the faith that keeps him asking questions about the ultimate truth and purpose of life. Rather than allow faith and reason to be kept in fragmented silos, Dr. Nick uses his capacious mind and heart to draw from both, which is not always an easy juggling act. Tonight, he'll speak to us on how he uses the tools of his discipline to allow him to embrace and extend an act of faith, and how that faith, in turn, animates his work as a prolific and sought-after neuroscientist at OHSU. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Joel Nigg to the University of Portland. Thanks, Karen, and thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, I'm going to try to start without the mic, and then if you can't hear me, just raise your hand, and I'll start carrying the mic with me, and I can use it. Um, I may mumble or I may shout, depending on how I'm feeling. Um, I'm going to try tonight to um, introduce myself briefly and get across just a couple of ideas that I hope will help begin to think about ways that you might put together in particular psychological science and neuroscience and Catholic faith. First of all, um, like all of us, I bring a number of identities tonight. Karen mentioned a couple of my identities. One is that I'm a scientist in the field of clinical psychology, but I also do a lot of work in cognitive psychology, neuroscience, a little bit even in genetics with collaborators. I've also got an extensive set of identities around Christian faith and Roman Catholicism and obviously other identities as well. And these are all going to be the lens I want to acknowledge up front that I won't hit all lenses. There will be other lenses you'll be able to think about this material through and maybe look at it from a different angle. Um, <clears throat> the reason I wanted to do this talk and part of why I wanted to move into this conversation a little bit is that we're at a critical point, I think, in our society in almost every respect. Certainly for those in the science field, they feel under, under siege in our culture with a hostility to science, hostility to evidence-based thinking and evidence-based truth. On the other hand, Catholics also can feel under siege with crisis in the church and so on. And in some ways, we're at a point in history, maybe a 200-year period right now, where the ideas and symbols of our religious faith and Catholicism are, are changing under the pressure of rapid changes in the culture. And Vatican II and the, the whole clash of modernity all speak to that. And so it's an important time to be continually struggling with what does the language mean, what does the beliefs mean, and how does, how does the kind of culture of science and the culture of Catholic faith and the intellectual traditions of those two traditions fit together. <clears throat> However, I will say as a Catholic, I feel, um, as many of you may know, pretty solid ground claiming that it's possible to bring my scientific and faith identities together. Uh, the Catholic intellectual tradition has historically, since the beginning, had a strong positive approach to philosophy, but also to science. And you don't have to read very deeply into these documents to see tremendous affirmation of science and interest in integrating scientific thought into faith and belief understanding. So, uh, and there's many other documents I could cite that would give that same message. So I, th I think it's very consistent with Catholic intellectual tradition to try to make some of the integrative directions that I'll just tentatively move in a little bit this evening. 
Psychology also happens to be a wonderful discipline for this conversation. It immediately touches on the question of subjective experience and how we think and perceive, and obviously that's very relevant to the question of religious faith and belief. I'm going to highlight just a couple of things this evening that come out of my field. One is that uh, there's a bit of wonder. Uh, I'll do just a little bit of wonder. There's a lot to wonder about and be marvel at in psychology and human development. We certainly know something about health, mental health, and how that might relate to spiritual health, and I'll say a brief word about that before I finish. And I want to spend some time uh, on humility and self-delusion in psychology and how that might help or not help our, our faith and belief thoughts. And then finally, this idea of transcendence and how transcendence might be a similar theme in both areas that may help bring uh, the belief in faith and science together. So I'm going to get across, really, there's three ideas I hope this evening or that will at least get us thinking about this. The first idea is that just in terms of fundamental assumptions and fundamental purpose and fundamental approach, that psychological science and really all of science, but, but psychological science perhaps in particular, and Catholic faith and Catholic spirituality and Catholic tradition are actually much more aligned and similar than they are different. Secondly, I want to um, talk about how that, that some of the fundamental assumptions of religious belief and of psychological science in terms of what reality is like and how we engage it are supported by experimental research. And finally, I want to talk about the parallels in terms of how we might think about the, the material spiritual realm from a scientific perspective. So first of all, the Catholic tradition and psychological science really are aligned in many ways, much more so than they're different. First of all, they have a shared vocation. The shared vocation has three parts in my mind. The first part is they have a shared vocation to serve our need to know, our need to know reality. If you read the goals, the life goals of scientists, inevitably it's, I want to know the truth. I want to find out what's really going on. If you read um, the writings of great monks, great spiritual masters, what is their purpose? They want to know what's true. They want to know reality. They want to know the truth. And so we have a hunger, as I certainly do, I think all of us do, to know what's really true. And that's a, that's a human calling that both of these disciplines and both of these domains are after. Both uh, Catholic faith and psychological science really intend and are, have a calling to provide practical help in real life to people. Um, Pedro Rupe, the, the former head of the Jesuits, was very famous for saying that, uh, that Catholic faith and belief is ultimately very, very practical. And of course, in psychology, we have a direct mission to helping people with practical help with their problems. And finally, there's really a, a drive in both uh, psychological science as well as clinical psychology and psychotherapy toward helping people achieve wholeness and achieve their their life uh, fulfillment and development and that's really very much the same of, as a Catholic and Christian spirituality are striving for the complete whole human development really ultimately uh, human becoming divine human fulfillment of destiny how is that different from psychological fulfillment it's at least aligned Secondly, both psychological science and all of science for that matter and Catholic faith and Catholic thought share fundamental assumptions about the nature of reality. The first assumption is that there is an objective reality. That reality is not purely constructed. It's not purely made up. It really exists apart from us. And secondly, there's agreement now, I think, between, uh, in the, in the, especially in the recent Catholic intellectual thought, about there being only one reality. Uh, this is incarnational theology. It's, there's a spirit-infused reality. And so 
psychological science and Christian faith are engaging the same reality, the same reality in different ways. And so what are they learning about their reality? Secondly, they assume before they start that re that reality can be known, at least partially. I actually think that that spiritual masters and uh, scientists all agree we can't know it entirely, but we can know it at least partially, and we can know it uh, in a growing way. And finally, both science, psychological science and Catholic thought agree on the critical importance of three faculties for us to know reality. We have to use our reason, our logic, we have to use intuition, and we have to use judgment. It's a myth that science is pure logic, just like it's a myth that faith and belief are pure intuition. They, they both have to rely on all these faculties. The role of experience, so I'm going to shift now to how they also have a shared approach, a shared method. And that method begins with experience. In science, it's maybe fairly obvious that we start with data, we start with observations, and then we try to understand those observations. So the method is what's called inductive. Take an experience and try to learn from it, as opposed to just thinking about it abstractly. In, in faith and religion as well, questions about God and about what's really true and really real about God, they aren't figured out by sitting and analyzing it, they're figured out by experience, by starting with experience and trying to understand that experience. And this is true whether one looks at the life of Jesus and the apostles, which were based entirely on experiences that were then interpreted, not based on Jesus didn't come out and give us a, a theory, he, he brought experiences. And so did the apostles, they talked about their experience. And the same for spiritual masters, John of the Cross, and then philosophers of religion, like Rudolf Otto, argued as well that, that experience is the basis of religious belief and faith, and then the thoughts and the beliefs emerge from that experience. And William James, the, the psychologist who gave him perhaps the most famous psychologist to talk about religion 100 years, more than 100 years ago now, and one of his points in his famous lectures on the experience of religion was that it begins with experience. So the, this inductive process, start with experience, start with with uh, observation and then develop from that your thoughts as opposed to the other way around is an important fundamental parallel here. So let me talk about that for a minute. Here's the general concept that I think is, is consistent with both scientific, psychological scientific approach and a Catholic spirituality approach, which is that we will claim or believe or assume or propose that there is a reality that God is part of that reality and that the only way to God is through that reality. For Catholics, that's a, that's a God-infused or spirit-infused material reality. For science, of course, it's not necessarily God-infused. It's just material reality. We have an experience. We, we somehow test that experience. We try to evaluate that experience, and then we form a belief about that experience. So it doesn't go the other way. We don't have a belief and then an experience. Of course, we do also. I'll talk about it in a minute, in a minute how there's actually a bidirectionality here. But the fundamental nature of direction here is important to highlight. So in the case of science, this is pretty well accepted or known that um, in psychological science in particular, we'll start with a clinical or behavioral observation. A patient has delusions or a child can't pay attention. That's our phenomena. That's our experience. Or maybe we have an internal experience. I'm depressed. What is that experience? And then, as a scientist, we'll try to understand that experience with an experiment or systematic observation. We'll take measurements, we'll follow scientific method, and, and make sure we control that experiment and get good controlled observations. And then, we'll draw a conclusion, we'll form a belief. 
This is how it works. And that, that'll be our belief, our theory, our hypothesis, our conclusion, until we get more information. And, and that'll be, then we'll, we'll go back and get new experience that will modify that and get more and more accurate over time. So science grows its knowledge more and more accurately over time by continually refining the beliefs or theories in relation to new facts and new information. Actually, I propose that religious faith and spiritual life, at least for me, and I think for many Catholics, are or should be very similar. We have an experience. It might be sacramental life. It might be prayer. It might be an encounter with another human being. It might be an encounter in nature. An experience that we feel like, that's the experience of God. That's the experience that's profound. It moved me deeply. In some way, it was important. Then we have to evaluate it. We have to consider, talk to friends, maybe do some reading. Maybe we look at Catholic tradition. We try to figure out what that means. And if you look at the history of religion, it's, I think this is experience, Christ, the apostles, beliefs, evaluate the tradition, and then beliefs are formed. This is what it means. This is what it means. And the supposed conflicts between science and faith, or science and religion, happen down here, when somehow this belief and this belief appear to be conflicting. And then we get into maybe... I think are often artificial, maybe occasionally real disagreements, important controversies or mysteries or conflicts here. But it goes back then to, well, what's then the rest of the experience, the new experience that would help resolve that? <clears throat> Finally, in terms of the parallels between psychological science and really, again, all of science in this case, and Catholic thought in particular is the important role of symbol. In psychological and neuroscience, we make heavy use of symbols to represent what we think is real. We have our data, we have our observation, but then we want to systematize it. So we have, in psychology in particular, quite a bit of mathematics and neuroscience that we try to model what we think, how decisions are made, how humans perceive, how the brain works. It's pretty obvious that this diagram is not actually a human being making a decision. This diagram is not actually a brain. These are representations of those realities meant to help us think about what those realities really are. These aren't the realities. These are representations of those realities. Similarly, in Catholic religious thought, we make heavy use of symbols and allegories, and this is talked about a lot from the first church fathers up through Augustine and Thomas and everybody else, and, and, and very much about our religious representations we have, obviously, there's many symbols of God. There's no way you can be literalistic about this. God can't be a rock and an eagle, right? So those obviously aren't God. They are symbols for God or aspects of God. Similarly, the creed is a set of words that represent, the creed isn't God. The creed represents or tells us about God, but it's not the exact same thing. So that distance between the symbol and the reality is critical to both psychological science and to Catholic thought about what we're doing with our beliefs and with our approach to experience and reality. And the goal of the symbols is to bring us closer to reality, but then those symbols can be modified or changed in principle. Now, I'm not saying we're going to change all these symbols, but hopefully some of them are true for a long time or forever, but nonetheless, they aren't the same thing. That's important, more important in a minute. I want to talk about how psychological science and experiment really strongly necessitates that view, that view that reality is only partially known and that we have to represent it imperfectly but partially. And I'm just going to give a few well-known examples for those of you that have had some psychology. I think some of this will be familiar, but for some maybe get a refresher on this. Um, but what I'm going to argue is that psychology, uh, psychological science really demonstrates or almost proves to us 
that reality is not the same as our representation of it, that it's partial. But I want to, this is important because spiritual mental health, it's critically important to get it right. Reality, one way that I define mental health in the clinic is the ability to grasp reality, perceive it as it is, and adapt to it accurately. So the mentally ill individual distorts reality a great deal. They misinterpret communications, they misinterpret motives, they misunderstand what's happening, and the mentally, Ill, mentally healthy person accurately perceives what's happening and makes effective decisions as a result. I think in Catholic spirituality, we're in human wholeness and spiritual wholeness, and so what does that look like? We can, we can talk about that, but I would guess that it would, if, if our faith is true, we should be getting closer to reality through our faith and not further from it. So this is kind of the misconception that I think many people have that the way we perceive reality is just like a clear window. We have, we read the Bible or we see scientific data, we, it's exactly what it looks like. We know exactly what it means. Um, we don't make any misinterpretations of it. We just get a nice clear view and our mental picture and reality match up just really nicely. It's pretty easy to prove that's not true. Let me just give you uh, a more realistic picture, which is that in reality, in actuality, it's probably more like this. We see through a glass somewhat darkly, but not entirely darkly. We actively participate in seeing that reality. Most of you, how many of you students have heard of, seen the Gestalt illusions before? A few of you have. So you all know that these are pretty good proof that we're actively constructing, our mind is actively constructing what we perceive as well. And there's interesting, um, uh, some of my neuroscience colleagues have attempted to calculate the amount of kilobytes of information that are hitting the retina in the world versus the amount of kilobytes of information that reach the visual cortex versus the kilobytes of information that reach consciousness. And the, the one calculation that one of my colleagues made was that the, the kilobytes that, that reach the retina are much more vivid than the best video image we have, right? You could do a, a 100,000 megabyte video image and it wouldn't be as good as our, our eyesight of reality. And yet, the, the kilobytes reaching the frontal cortex are only enough for about a telephone call. And so how do we get this rich portrayal of conscious reality? Because we're, the brain is efficiently constructing from the signals it gets uh, uh, an accurate picture and then modifying it based on new information. These illusions prove how that can be wrong. And there's many others. How many of you have seen the gorilla in the basketball court? So. That's another example of how it's not just perception, but also attention. And of course, there's many examples of cognition as well that have been much bandied about in our political climate these days of how we, we, uh, we see what we want to see, so to speak, in, in terms of, of evidence sometimes. We, we run into cognitive dissonance and we, we ignore information that doesn't fit our worldview. And it's very challenging and difficult to, to get past some of these biases. And these biases don't just bother they don't just mislead us in our religious faith and get us to fall into superstition and that sort of thing, or politically and get us to misread. They also mix scientists up. Scientists make errors based on these biases also, and clinicians make errors. So part of my training when I train physicians and psychologists is I teach them about how in your practice to, to watch out for these uh, cognitive errors. So it's a danger for scientists as well as people of faith to pay attention to the fact that our, our perception of what's real isn't the same thing as what's real. And we have to find out, figure out how real it is and how to correct it. Okay, I think I blanked it. There it goes. I told Karen that would happen at least once. So, um, <clears throat> they align in their assumptions about reality, 
They align in their vocation, and they align somewhat in their approach to how we're going to encounter reality. They're, I'm not uh, arguing that there's everything that's the same status, uh, scientific knowledge has a different status in some ways than religious belief because scientific knowledge can be reproduced in an experiment by somebody else, whereas religious experience is much more particular. But nonetheless, the methods and the assumptions have a lot of parallels. All right, so I want to bring up then... So the first point I made was the shared vocation. The second point was that psychology perception supports the um, kind of critical reality view, critical realism view, and the non-literalistic view to some extent. The final section of this talk, I want to talk about an area of psychology, neuroscience and biology that is um, maybe a little bit more controversial, but I think extraordinarily helpful to us. And it's the relationship between the biology of emergence and the uh, theology or philosophy or spirituality of transcendence. So first of all, I think we can all agree that there is a transcendent experience in human life. There's a dimension of depth in our human life that is, un is, is, is definitely there. You know, people will experience this depth dimension in a variety of ways. I listed mostly positive transcendences here, but there also are, are negative transcendences, transpersonal evil, racism, transcendent things that are way beyond uh, rational thought and have a mystery about them. And in fact, there's a, there's a wonderful quote here about originality and creativity. Where, where did Bach or Beethoven get that stuff? You know, where did Einstein get that stuff? It seems to come from you know, a realm of genius that's impossible for us to understand. And so there's a creativity, a creative force somewhere, either in our mind or in the universe, that we encounter. And it's often experienced as coming from outside of us and coming through us by, by artists or people doing creative work. What is that? Um, and, and I would posit, in a sense, that there is something deep in reality, and it's really, not our, it's really empirical. We know that that exists. We experience it. What we argue about is what it means. So there's really not an argument. If, if this is what God is about, it's not really an argument about whether there is God. It's really an argument about what, 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 what kind of God is it? You know, what, what does it amount to? You know? And is it illusionary? Is it something that we're inventing in our imagination, or is it something really, really there? I'll talk about that for a minute. Is, is, the, is that apparent, uh, intangible, re real? So some of you have probably felt like you were in love before. How many people ever thought they were in love? A few are going to admit it. Okay. All right. And, well, um, and so this is the science view of love right over here on the right. All right. Oxytocin is a wonderful molecule. And um, so reductionists would say, well, you're not really in love. That's not real. This is what's real. This reduced molecule is what's real. And this appears, this is imaginary. All right. But I think you know, on the authority of your own interior subjective experience, that that, that love is also real. Right? It's intangible, but it's real. But somehow, it's coming from the oxytocin, apparently. So they're both real, and yet, what, what do we do you know, with that? So, is the oxytocin all that's really there, or is the love really there? Let me come at it another way. Mona Lisa. What's really there? Well, there's a bunch of little dots of chemical on a piece of canvas, a bunch of little dots of paint. And that's, is that all that's really there? Is the face really there? And so, in a way, I think it's fair to say, and, and I stole this example from a philosopher, 
named, named Roger, I don't know if it's pronounced Gruten, or maybe some of your philosophers would know, but um, he gives this example, and, and he says, I think correctly, if you don't see the face, you're not seeing it correctly. The face is really there, right? But the face is not anything extra. The, the dots are there, the paint's there. The face is not an extra thing. It's not an extra entity. It's emerging from the dots, right? It's, it's a feature or a property that's emerged. It's not a new thing. And so, and, and there's an entire now meme about this, really, in our culture on emergence in biology. And there's this book down at the bottom here is a great source for those that want to get into numerous examples of the property of emergence. But I want to use it here to talk about how it might relate to transcendent experience. And we see this in particular in my field, in psychology and neuroscience, there's actually active argument in the literature about what this means. And here's kind of how it plays out in our field. So, and I'll just use the example from development, where I think emergence is, is very clear. We have, um, it's, it's clear in our science of development that as the child grows into an adolescent that they develop new mental capacities. Their brain develops in ways that are dramatic. We can now see the development in some very beautiful longitudinal brain imaging studies that have come out in the last few years about how the, how the, the cortical mantle thickens and how cells prune and the brain organizes and it does so in various characteristic ways that are lawful and nonlinear and asynchronous and are just astonishing and a source of wonder. But as that brain is, is developing, it's developing new systems, new properties are emerging. And in parallel to that, the mind of the child develops new capabilities. So these I put here the kind of old Piagetian, just for very simplistic Piagetian stages. And the child, the young, the six-year-old can do some of these cognitive capabilities, but they can't do these. And then around 11 or 12, 13 or something, the child begins to be able to do these things. They have to, suddenly these new properties emerge from this cellular organization here. So the mind has emerged in some way from the brain. These cognitive abilities have emerged, and they've even emerged into new abilities emerging from old abilities as the brain emerges in new circuits. So this relationship is very important, and the mind now is, is its own entity, arguably not different from the brain. Nothing new is there, and yet the mind is really there. That cognition is really there. One way that this has been discussed in biology is that to explain the cognitive processes here in terms of the brain requires pages of tensor equations, and we don't even know how to do it. It's very complicated. Lots of recursive causal loops and systems, and it would be a massive lecture to try to begin to even explain what the brain is doing. And yet, at the level of the mind, it's very easy to explain. It's very simple. The child added two and two. It takes one easy to, easy to explain. It's so easy to explain at the level of the mind because the mind operates by its own rules that aren't reducible to the brain, even though the mind emerge from the brain and is nothing different than from the brain. And so there's this paradox here that the mind is emergent, it's not a new added thing, and yet it's real and it has its own properties. So here's one way to think about this, and there's other ways to think about it, but this is one way to think about it. And here I should have drawn a whole body because it's somewhat of a miss, another myth that, that cognition is only the brain. The whole body does, communicates with the brain. and so. One of the things that medicine is learning 
is that the brain is actually part of the body. And, uh, and, and that the body is part of the brain and that the mind is part of the brain and body. So that's, I think science, medicine is sort of making this radical discovery that we're just a whole organism here. So I apologize for showing only the brain and not the whole body. But the idea here is that the mind emerges as a property of brain activity. Down here, I want to direct your attention down here. What neuroscience can do, neuroscience can ask, how is that mental activity implemented in the brain? That's a very good scientific question, and we have great tools for it, and it's very consistent with Catholic intellectual tradition, which says that God acts through material reality. So the mind acts in the brain, and analogously to how we might say that God would act in material reality. Not I'm not saying the mind is God, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. But science works in the sense downward here toward how is this implemented? How is it implemented in the material world? In spirituality, we can look at the emergence and think about the spirituality of transcendence and about how we can, to represent the full meaning of what's happening here, we have to include that transcendent dimension. It's not entirely reducible. So when a common error in, in, in some parts of, of neuroscience and psychology is to want to reduce and say all that's really there is the brain. But that's only the implementation. It's not the whole story. So can we extend this now into our spiritual experience? I'm going to propose that we can, but first I want to point something out. I want to point out the reality of the mind in a different way. So is the mind real? This uh, brain imaging slide is one of the very first, might even be the first, one of the early, at least one of the early studies showing that cognitive therapy creates the same brain imaging changes as medication would for uh, phobias. And, and subsequent research has showed that it's not exactly the same brain changes uh, as medication once you get into it in more depth, but, but there are substantial and similar brain changes. You get symptomatic improvement. One of the beautiful things about studying conditions like obsessive and phobias and anxiety conditions is that you get almost identical clinical results with medication as you do with cognitive behavioral therapy. And so as a result, you can look at the brain effects and see if those are the same. And it turns out that they're quite comparable in many respects, in this particular, one of these early studies that are almost identical. And what this proves, though, is this quite striking fact that the mind changes the brain. It's not just that the brain changes the mind. The causality goes in both directions. And in fact, we now have entire fields of medicine built on this principle. The mind-body influences now are, are now so powerfully recognized. Uh, studies of the placebo effect and, and so on. Um, the, the placebo effect is so strong that it's hard to study drugs for mental illness because if the patient believes this medication is going to help them, 30% get better on that belief that the mind changes the brain and their brain chemistry will change accordingly. So uh, <clears throat> this directionality is bidirectional. That's part of the reality of the mind. The mind is not imaginary here. It, it really does stuff. I can give many, many examples of this. What does this mean in terms of spirituality? Well, I'm going to offer one thought here, and I'm going to be treading dangerously to theology here, so my theology colleagues, please forgive me and get me afterwards. Um, but I want to I offer a thought that I got from a theology colleague, which is that when we as an integrated human being encounter God in reality, or through reality, that's spirit. That's, that's our spiritual self. So the spirit then emerges... In the same way the mind emerges from the brain, the spirit emerges from the mind's encounter with reality and seeing God there. Because God is acting in reality. 
in the Catholic intellectual tradition, we say God really is acting in reality. It's not just a metaphor. We don't know everything about it. Our, our beliefs might be not quite right. We might have to change our understandings. But in some way that we don't fully understand, God really is there acting in reality. We really are experiencing God as an emergent spirituality, emergent property, through our material existence. So it's implemented in our material life. It's not a whole different reality. We're not entering a spirit world that's got nothing to do with the material world. It's the same world, it's the same reality, and God and spirit are in it. Very consistent with the emergence of neuroscience, but also, I think, consistent with at least some, my friend Bob LaSalle Klein, who's a theologian, proposed to me this is, this is defensible theologically. I'll leave it to my theology colleagues to, to enlighten us as whether that's really fair. But I think this is quite powerful as a way to think about how we, we bring God into our immediate present right here and now. In this reality, we encounter God through our human presence, and it's a dimension that's really there. It may, it's not a new reality outside of this reality, but it's a real dimension of this reality. So then, if that's so, if that's how it is, then we have beliefs about that, we have ideas about that. And so the model then that I'm thinking about is that there's a living reality of God that we don't know very much about, that we can only partially access here and there, hints, eruptions, moments. We have experiences. Some of them are illusionary and some of them are real. We don't know how to tell the difference. We use our scientific knowledge, our moral knowledge, our conversations in community, our theology books and our, our, our experience to try to tell them apart. And so what we end up with, we end up with different beliefs. Some of them are wrong and some of them are right. At a given point in time, we think they're all correct. That's why we have them. But over time, we find that some of them are wrong. And so whether we're a scientist with beliefs or a believer of faith with beliefs, scientific evidence is a helper to us. It's a friend. It helps us sort the wheat from the chaff. So we can have some beliefs about God or about the Bible that just can't be literally true. Science can prove them false. Augustine talked about this 1,500 years ago. And, when you're, and on the other hand, we have some other beliefs that are totally compatible with science and some others that science can't, can't comment on. It's outside the realm of science to reach. So in the scientific field, this happens. <clears throat> There's a, one of the major turning points in my field was about 1960, up until that time, there was widespread belief that schizophrenia and mental illness was almost entirely due to early parenting. It had nothing to do with genetics. It wasn't biological. It was early parenting. That was a deeply held theory, a deeply held belief among my predecessors 50, 60 years ago. I had a colleague that I met as a student who at that time was, was a very elderly colleague. He was actually a mentor of mine in grad school. who was at the meeting. Uh, in 1960, where Seymour Ketty presented the first data on twins adopted at birth, heart, and schizophrenia rates, and proved irrevocably that there's a massive gen genetic influence on schizophrenia. And he told me that there were uh, scholars at that meeting that literally got sick and had to leave the room because their beliefs of reality had just been massively challenged. Cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. Sometimes that happens when you're a scientist. I'm in the uncomfortable position right now that I have a paper coming out this month. I've made part of my reputation arguing a particular theory of ADHD, and I have a, a competitor who I've 
don't always like that much, who's got a different theory, and I got some outstanding data. And it proved him right and me wrong. And I've got that paper coming out this month. I don't like how that feels. That's science. But it's also religion. Sometimes we find out that our religious beliefs have to be revised because of new information. The Earth really wasn't created 6,000 years ago. It just wasn't. Um, humans really aren't unrelated to animals. They just aren't. They are related to animals. We can prove that scientifically. And so those are allegorical beliefs or allegorical statements in the Bible. On the other hand, as I understand from some recent reading I've been doing uh, in some recent scripture scholarship, some of the miracles that Jesus did that they thought were legends turn out probably really happened. And so it can cut both ways. Sometimes you get stronger than you thought. And I've reversed myself. I used to believe that most of the healings in the Bible probably were mythological. But the more I've learned about mind-body science, the more I think probably a lot of healings really happened. They might have been embellished in whatever the, the uh, traditions of oral tradition are, but they probably have real basis in fact. So we're going to find out through science which parts of our beliefs are literal and which ones need to be rethought as far as symbolism. That doesn't change the reality behind them. Remember, the reality and the beliefs are not identical. And so I want to point out that this history is going to go forward, we hope. And whether we have scientific views or religious views, there's a little bit of humility here. Science hasn't come very far. We don't know very much right now in science about anything compared to what we're going to know in 3,000 years or 30,000 years. It's inevitable that things we believe today, whether about the material world or about religious beliefs, are going to get challenged. And some of them are going to have to change. And so part of the question that we have as, as human beings is in trying to be whole is what do we do about that? Well, our Catholic, our Catholic tradition tells us, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. God is the truth. The truth is going to be revealed to us over time, little by little, a lot by little, and that ultimately God and truth are the same thing. So don't fear the truth. Welcome the truth. Embrace what we learn. And I think our Catholic intellectual tradition is in some ways a fantastic approach to spirituality because of that conviction that truth is not to be feared no matter where it comes from, but tested. So... In conclusion, uh, I'll give you two, two sets of thoughts. First, in my view, psychological science and Catholic spirituality are a great help to each other. In a sense, they need each other. First of all, to protect science from utilitarian logic. One of our great shames in my field is psychologists helping with torture planning uh, in the beginning of the of the terrorism campaign in 2002. That became a great black eye in my field. Why did psychologists get involved in helping with torture? What, what happened there? What was missing in terms of thought? And the, the danger of a utilitarian and really almost nihilistic or technocratic approach to human problems, if we don't have a depth understanding of human life, is, is everywhere. You can, you can find many, many examples of that in our society without looking very far. So science needs faith in some form. There needs to be some, some depth recognition, and science can't provide it. And this is where Catholic spirituality is such a fantastic help, because it embraces science at the same time that it, it can fill this out. Sorry, hit the wrong button. On the other hand, science can help keep us away from superstition and false 
literalism and mere sentimentality. Um, I, one, of, one of my challenges in life is on this, uh, in the academy, I have to take a lot of grief for my hard science colleagues because they think I'm soft-headed because I'm religious. On the other hand, among my religious friends, I take a lot of grief for being way too logical and not trusting half the stuff that they say in New Age spirituality because it's scientifically implausible. And so uh, I get it from both ends. So it's, it's, uh, but, but I like Catholicism because I think in Catholicism I'm kind of at home with that. Um, so we can certainly can, in religion, can become very fanatical and very superstitious if it's not corrected by science and, and logic. More importantly, we can't represent, I can't represent the full dimensionality of experience, the full depth of human life, without having both the scientific grasp of the material world and the Catholic spirituality and intellectual grasp of the depth part of reality. So to address, and to address human needs at all levels, and that includes church needs. The church might use a little science now and then. On the other hand, some of human society could use a little input from good religious thinking. And ultimately, from St. Irenaeus, achieve wholeness. I talked about wholeness at the beginning from a psychological point of view, but from a spiritual point of view, human wholeness is a very important, deep thought in Catholic thought. And, of course, that wonderful, wonderful quote from St. Irenaeus, the, the human being fully alive, and God as we approach in, in kind of the, the Christ model, uh, approach God. So in conclusions then, psychological science, and I would say all of science, but psychological science in a particular way here tonight, and Catholic tradition have a shared vocation, sh many shared philosophical assumptions, and even despite some very different contents, some very different missions, and some very different creeds, they also have some very parallel approaches to engaging the same reality. Psychological science supports the critical realism of contemporary Catholic thought. Psychological science and neuroscience reveal an emergent property that converges with the depth dimension that Catholic thought and Catholic spirituality address and attempt to describe and attempt to understand. And ultimately, science and faith are not enemies but allies in the search for truth. I would go so far as to say, along with Marilyn Robinson, that intellectual integrity requires that both dimensions, rather than intellectual integrity requiring me to jettison my faith, it requires me to understand more deeply that faith life and how that fits in, because it's an unarguable part of our reality. So I encourage you all, and myself, to embrace a unified grasp of a large reality that embraces a scientific and a spiritual understanding and looks for ways to bring those together into a unified picture of this fascinating reality that we're part of. That's it. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Nagel, take a couple of questions if you'd like to pose and you're, you're going to do the calling. Sure, I'll call them out. All right, yes, sir. Um, brain development, childhood, adult. Prodigy or the genius? Does that process just start earlier? Oh, that's a great question. Where does prodigy and genius come from? I'd say it depends. You know, Einstein's a great example. As a kid, he was a mess, right? Uh, learning disability, ADHD, who knows? Um, but I, there's an entire field of psychology on uh, giftedness or gifted development, uh, kids with extraordinary IQ or extraordinary ability. Um, and we've got sort of multiple kinds of it there. But I'd say often there are signs very early, you know, prodigies that are very early on. But um, 
that's another very pr uh, limited field. I don't know a lot about that field, actually, of the, the psychology of how genius develops. But uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating area that some people are actually trying to study. Yeah. Let's uh, go you and then in front. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So as she's asking for those who couldn't hear, what do I mean by evaluating on the religious side? It's clear in psychology and science you mean an experiment. What do you mean on the religious side? I'm thinking there of all the tools we use to evaluate our own experience. So uh, you're, I think you're talking about evaluating beliefs. You know, is my belief right? Well, that's one part of it. But also, what is my experience? Is it really an experience of God? Or is it just an experience of, uh, uh, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, what I ate last night, you know? And so uh, I think there, that's where we bring to bear what does the tradition say? Uh, what does science say? What does moral reasoning say? What does our community say? Um, and then you can you, you evaluate your experience and you learn about God and your life that way. So that's part of how we live our, our faith life. But as far as our beliefs, yes, so then doubt is part of that. Well, I'm not sure this, this belief doesn't make sense to me. You know, um, uh, you know, could Mary really have been a virgin? You know, I mean, what does that mean? Is that an allegory? You know, and then you can start thinking about that and you, you learn from that. Then you say, oh, I'm going to study that. I'm going to learn about that. You know, and you start to study this stuff. And then what does that mean for my faith? What does that mean about God? And, and my experience is it leads to a deeper, deeper understanding of God. Because if the belief is, isn't quite right in some way, you learn more by digging into what is it really saying. And that's part of the beauty of the journey. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, and then in front of her, and then we'll come back over here. So you mentioned that your colleagues kind of give you grief for your faith. Have you found that in a professional life um, you could be taken less seriously, or have, have you had that experience? Uh, I haven't. Um, I don't tolerate being taken less seriously too well. So, um, but no, uh, but being serious for a minute. No, I've um, I've certainly listened to people, you know make these, these arguments, you know, well, gee, you can't be a serious scientist if you have religious belief. But if I confront them with, well, I have religious belief, you know, are you saying I'm not a serious scientist? Then they'll usually back off and say, no, no, I just mean, you know, some people, you know, aren't thinking very well. And I say, well, sure, they're not, including you right now, you know, but, um, so, so, but, but there is that tension. I mean, it's, uh, there is a sort of culture in the academy of hostility to religion. It's very fashionable to be anti-religious and very fashionable to be a, an atheist, you know. But it's not always very well examined. I mean, there's wonderful, I have, I was, I, when I first conceived this talk, I was going to do a whole thing on atheism and what a wonderful gift it is to us to help us shed some of our outdated, you know, poorly examined thoughts. Because there are some very, very good discussions to be had there. What do we mean about God, you know? Um, I think this, this material is a, is a starting point for that conversation, actually. But no, I haven't found it interfered. You know, I feel like my colleagues know me, and and um, and and I'm I, I'm pretty careful about separating when I'm making a scientific claim versus a religious claim. They aren't claims about the same thing exactly, even though it's the same reality. Okay, I think we got a question here. Just a comment. It would be wonderful if we could package you and inculcate you into the brain of our entire current. President's cabinet and the president. <laughs> well, th there's a case to be made for a need for additional ethics and additional science. 
uh, I will leave it there. <coughs> yes, sir. The uh, Catholic Medical Association recently posted a retracted journal, peer-reviewed, PhD, a real, actual journal on RNA, and it was because they said they were using the scientific method, but weren't. And could you speak to the rise of scientism? You know, on our side, or on yes. the faith side, there are you know, two sides of the same yeah. coin. Yeah. It seems like the faith side of the coin gets chopped up and dissected and got rid of it. Whereas the other side of the coin, oh, it's just science. It's one word. It get up easy. And yet there's a ton of scientism going on You're right. under the table. You're right. So when he says scientism, he's referring to science as a, as a faith system if you will. There's a wonderful book out, just came out by Roger Penrose, who's a physicist, uh, and the title is something like uh, Fantasy, Faith, and Facts in Science. And he takes physics to task for most of physics theory is a little more than belief, with, with, uh, uh, that really isn't factual at all, it's just, it's just a belief, you know, it's just a fact, you know. There are 100,000 universes, you know. Uh, and and uh, Penrose says, how is claiming there's 100,000 universes different than a religious belief? You know, uh, and so he goes into this and kind of, and he's got tensor equations and everything. You know, he just goes crazy. But um, the the scientism idea is confusing the metaphysics of how we know. My first side of assumptions that there is a reality and so on and so forth. There's a whole, and the philosophers in the room, as those of you that have philosophy, there's a whole metaphysics around how do we know stuff. For science, you have to assume the material reality is orderly and lawful. You have, to, you have to assume that to do science. To say that it's orderly and lawful is not a scientific claim. It's a metaphysical claim. It's a necessary one if you want to do science, but it's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. In the same way, if a scientist says, well, there is no God, well, that's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. You know, I think there's only a material reality. I don't think there's a supernatural reality. You can think that, but that's not a scientific statement. And so that's scientism. And so part of what, um, what, what you're pointing out is that this is, this is quite rampant. It's rampant in my field. I mean, one of the things that motivates me to do this type of talk is that some of my colleagues in psychology are walking around saying this stuff. You know, they're, they're, there's famous psychologists publishing books and giving speeches saying, you know, we need reason, not religion, to solve human problems. Because I'm a scientist, I know this. And it's a, it's a classic example of making your, your assumption, your conclusion, you know, they're, they're, you kind of end up where you started. And so that's, that's right. That's a, uh, sometimes gets off easy and doesn't get the same level of critique. Religion has to get taken to task. So it's a, it's a fair point. And, and we have to be aware. That's one reason I want to emphasize a distinction between the scientific method and the scientific assumptions that are necessary to do that method which I actually think are, are quite parallel for religious faith and science, but they're, they're not science. They're philosophy. Yeah. One more question. Yes, sir. Um, I, I fear asking this question because you're an expert on this, but uh, when it comes to something like uh, determinism, you were talking about with, with uh, um, uh, emergence. Yeah. And saying that in a sense there's nothing really more to the mind than the brain. It emerges from the brain, but it's not there extended, it's not over and above it. There, there is and there isn't. Yeah, that, that's, I guess that's what there I'm trying isn't, to wrap yeah. my mind around. Yeah, yeah. You also said that the, the causal arrow goes both ways. Right. I can't make sense of that without saying it's over and above it. Right. So 
and, and, and you're right, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a mind bender yeah. in a way. Um, and it does sort of merge into, we're merging here into how do we describe this thing? Because we're trying to describe this phenomenon where the mind can influence the brain. From a scientific perspective, the mind can't exist without the brain. The mind is a product of the brain. Now you can say, well, I'm going to propose that the mind can exist apart from the brain. But scientifically, we, we can't do that, right? We don't have any way to get at that. So we, for scientifically, we assume that the mind can't exist apart from the brain. And yet we see that the mind is this property that has these, these powers. And so um, I think it's legitimate to say that if it's a spirit-infused reality, God is really there. God is beyond it, right? But, but present through it. And that's how we know God is through our physical reality. That that transcendent experience is real, but it's part of the same reality. And in a sense, the, so, so we haven't left this reality and gone into another one. Right. I mean, that's kind of what, what I'm trying to get at here. And it's sort of radical incarnationalism, if you will. Now, misused or misunderstood, that becomes, there's really nothing else there, right? It's all just symbol, right? And I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that transcendent is really there, just like the Mona Lisa face is really there, the mind is really there, love is really there, even though it's implemented through oxytocin. They're both really there. And yet, the same rea- the reality, is, we haven't got two things there. In a way, right? It's, it's a multidimensional single reality. So I'm sorry. Can I ask? No, yeah, yeah. So the so the um, I, I think I'm, I'm I'm following you. So so the the problem with like materialism would be that you're only looking at half of reality. Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay, I'm following. You. Okay. The the false reductionism right. would say you can reduce it down just to the material. That 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 reducibility doesn't work. It doesn't work in biology because you can't explain an ecosystem merely by looking at one tree, right. Right. Uh, right? And you can't explain the mind. <clears throat> ultimately, you probably could describe the mind through the brain. Ultimately, they probably will, but the equations will be so extensive compared to how simple it is to explain it at, the le- at its own level, right? And so that's part of the, the reason. That's part of what the biologists are grappling with. And you'll see complaints in the literature. It's getting ridiculous. <clears throat> We're trying to explain how a stem cell decides whether to become pluripotent or not, and the equations are so extensive when we can just say it so easily what the behavior of the cell is. Yeah. Uh, so there's these two levels that are both part of the same reality. I think an aha like that is a great place to end our conversation. <laughs> so uh, thanks once again for coming out. Students, if you need to sign in, that will be happening in the hallway. If you want to find out more about the Garavena Center, table over there. If you'd like to uh, ask a question you didn't want to in front of 80 of your best friends, I know that Dr. David would be happy to engage in conversation. Have a great evening. Uh, don't leave us with food on our platters, please. Uh, thank you, everybody.